Welcome to this week's Monday meeting. Today is January 20th, 2020. Whoa, nice. All right, didn't even think about that till right now. Uh, Monday meetings are a chance for motion designers all over the world to connect and ask questions, share inspiration, or hear presentations, and interact with industry-leading artists on an equal playing field. Your host today is Mark Snozia. That is me. Uh, today, we're just going to have an open discussion. Uh, we haven't had one in a little bit, so... Uh, Excited to see where this goes. If you have a question or a topic or anything to uh, bring up, please use the raise your hand function located under the participants button uh, and we'll call on you there. If you're unable to ask your question, please type question in the chat window and we can field them properly. This is essentially raising your hand um, and any comments or questions that seem to be spammy or go off topic or whatnot uh, will be muted. Uh, as usual, this call will be recorded. Uh, if you have any concerns about something that was said on the call, let us know at the end and we will be sure to omit it in the final release. Um, before we dive into everything, just opening topics. Again, Camp MoGraph, uh, October 8th through 11th in Portland, Oregon. Tickets go on sale. April 20th, um, and just a big shout out to the sponsors that are supporting us with that venture, uh, Otoy, Maxon, Video Copilot, and Minimal Massive. So thank you very much for your support. We really appreciate it. Um, outside of that, opening topics, I really don't have many today. I was thinking uh, we could just kind of open it right up for anyone that has any pressing issues or questions, um, anything like that. So um, let me open up the chat window to see if there's anything going there. If not, Liam, did you have anything that you wanted to say right off the bat? Or you? No, I'm, I've been kind of out of the loop since my kids have been home. So <laughs> I just cool. like most, most of the stuff that I have is just links for later. Um, cool. Yeah, I don't know. Anyone else have anything they want to talk about? Anything really? Like we said this last week, and I just want to reiterate it again. Like, kind like this can definitely be like a safe haven for people too. Like, if you got like shit going on in your life, let it out as well. But um, yeah, I I think if not, then I know Matthew has his stuff that he wants to talk about too. So yeah, I I do have one thing that I totally spaced to put in the notes, but. Um, we're doing a special Monday meeting, February 3rd, um, and that is going to be with a special guest, and that guest is uh, Jason Poley, um, and we're going to be doing it at a special time, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, Jason is over in Melbourne, Australia, so it's going to be, we're accommodating that time difference, if you will, so um, he's had uh, an amazing talk go live recently from, uh, was it NodeFest? Yeah, I think Node. Uh, and he's going to come in and we're going to just kind of talk a little bit about his presentation and, you know, some of the personal and like uh, mental health issues that he's dealt with a little bit. And then also, you know, any sort of resources or anything that he may have, or we may find as well. So um, stay tuned for that. That's going to be a really cool episode and something that, you know, uh, I really appreciate Jason uh, for stepping out and talking about that because 
many people don't talk about that stuff. And I think a lot of people do battle with it. So that should be a really good one. So anyway, uh, be sure to show up February 3rd at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So uh, yeah. I just dropped the link in the chat and just for like people that may be listening to this and can't just go to the link, um, a quick synopsis is Jason went over like some particle work that he did and then he realized he was kind of having like a mental breakdown a little bit too with like freelancing and all of that and then he goes into like how doing particle work and then turning that into like a personal project helped him get through it but just like resources to deal with any mental health problems that are going on and recognizing that like you're not the only one and it happens to a bunch of people in the industry um it's only like i think it was 30 minutes right mark it's a pretty yeah it's, yeah, it's a pretty short little chat and like if you have youtube red or plus or whatever the hell it's called you could probably play it in the background as you're driving to work or something um but it's definitely worth a, a watch or a listen for sure yeah cool um, all right. Well, if anyone, oh, wait, before we dive into that, Jess, I don't know if you're available to chat, but she just put in the chat that uh, she was at NodeFest and it was very emotional and she had to do her presentation after, <laughs> but I'm sure it was great presentation. Are they going to be, uh, posting your presentation, Jess? Do you know? Just waiting to see if it pops in the chat. Yes, at some point. Okay, great. Well, we'll be sure to link that out and share that with the community when uh, that gets posted. Um, cool. Well, um, I guess if no one else has any pressing topics or any discussion things that they want to hop into, um, Matthew is is with uh, a coworker of his and a. I guess I'll just let you maybe do a little quick intro on uh, what you guys are, where you work, you know, what you're working with now, some of the emerging technologies and stuff that you guys are, are using. Sure. Uh, just as a uh, precursor, uh, this is actually a test of the space to see if I can link it up with the Zoom group. Um, because uh, one of our other colleagues might be able to speak to the earlier subject of um, coping mechanisms and such, and I'm trying to get her to come and present for us. Um, but to run my test, this is uh, Jesse Domini, so I guess we'll start from the beginning. Uh, I'm Matt Ashby. Uh, we work at Southern New Hampshire University in the Innovation Center. Um, I'm a motion graphics designer here, and Jesse is the Deputy Director of Emergent Technology. Um, I've asked him to come and talk about his, one of his specialties, which is XR. I don't know if everybody here listens to Motion Hatch, but they just did a VR episode. And I was like, oh, I know a guy. So I know a guy. <laughs> yeah. Everybody. Um, it's exciting to be talking uh, to all of you about this because um, I think particularly as um, AR applications become more commonplace and as um, VR is becoming more mainstream with um, the latest Oculus headset, uh, we really need good motion graphics. Um, and a lot of um, focus is on um, sort of the more laborious grunt dev work and less in terms of actually making things 
um, approachable to people and elegant. And so, um, yeah, so my background, uh, I'm from the sort of creative side of things. I, I uh, studied writing um, and then that kind of segued into, um, I've worked as a journalist co covering emerging technologies uh, for the past five years or so. And in the meantime, uh, attempted to launch uh, an XR startup that like many startups didn't go that well. And now I'm here. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what more to say in this particular moment, but I wanted to kind of make myself um, kind of like available as a resource to chat about things. I'm happy to answer questions. Um, but uh, as I said, I think there's a there's a big gap uh, with motion graphics designers name all over it. Yeah, one of the, like, oh, go ahead, Matt. No, I was just um, kind of filling the space. Uh, one of the projects that I'm attached to right now is actually using our uh, SNHU's uh, in-house game development studio, which um, is, again, a working classroom, but we're using it uh, as a production pipeline to build out a couple of VR experiences here at the university, which is, you know, hugely exciting for me. Um, and I figured other people would be interested in how motion graphics is developing in VR elsewise. So if you've got any questions for Jesse while we have him here, he is uh, kind of a genius, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess the first question I was gonna ask, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit, is how is the, the university using XR, VR, like any or AR, any of the platforms currently. Like, if I like in my mind, I immediately think of like doing a tour of the campus, and like maybe you can like pull up your phone and like get some information about one of the buildings. So, is that stuff that you guys do, or like, what, yeah, just give us some examples of how you're incorporating that. Sure. So, um, sort of as a top level statement, lots of different universities are are kind of peeping around in a lot of different places. Um, so not everybody's using it to sort of the full potential as I think it will be in say four or five years. Right now we're doing um, sort of a couple different things. Uh, we're exploring how uh, a remote virtual commencement ceremony would look, which is what sort of is, we call graduation here. So what would it be like for people who have um, either sort of physical, emotional, psychological needs where they can't really be in person for a graduation ceremony, but they want to attend it and they want to be part of it. Um, and so we're kind of exploring like what avenues does VR potentially play in that. Um, and we're also doing um, what we're calling the immersive learning project, which is where we're taking a biopsychology course, which is the sort of hardest science course that psychology majors take on campus. And we're working with a professor who's teaching, you know, the traditional analog version. But then there's also another version where there's three modules where the entire sort of course and their reference material is taught to them in VR. So we're talking about people that normally like it's, you know, the, the soft science aspect means that they're normally kind of thinking qualitatively, but when you have to get into biopsychology, you're talking about what's happening at the neuron and synapse level. And so, we're using VR to kind of to, to spatialize that for people so that you can actually experience it as a spatial thing. And then also sort of interact and participate in such a way that you can see, for instance, how, you know, the sodium molecules sort of move through, uh, you know, the synapse. And, and uh, we're using that as a way to test out how does VR work in the classroom. But obviously like the longer vision is not like to do these kind of like bespoke things. The longer vision is to start 
aligning all of these different things that people are making and people make and get to a point where we could have entire courses taught remotely the same way that like you use tutorial sites to learn anything you're learning today, but you could actually hop into VR and have it spatialized for you. At least the things that deserve to be spatialized. Some things are much better in 2D. Uh, they're quicker, they're easier to process that way. And some things, because we are sort of spatial by nature, you learn much more quickly uh, and more effectively um, in VR. But to your, to your earlier question, there's a ton of like sort of latent possibility in terms of um, information tagging and sort of geo-locking different uh, pieces of, you know, augmented art all throughout campus. Um, that's something in, in sort of my other life that, that I play around with. Um, and also creating sort of photogrammetry models of a given space so that if somebody wants to see what the campus is like from afar, you know, they can just hop into this model and kind of scrub around it and be able to actually experience what it's like. Um, and then also there's a ton of things that lots of us haven't thought of yet. And this is why, like, what's cool about XR is that a lot of different people are coming from a lot of different angles um, with different ideas about how to solve spatial problems. To uh, make a comment about the immersive learning pilot, uh, they actually created this class um, in VR, and I actually I did one of the experiences, and it's, I mean, like it blew my mind. Uh, th that's you know, that's how I see the future of motion graphics going: is a bunch of designers developing these visuals. Uh, I believe we worked with Unit Nine out of London, um, and they. Put together this amazing thing that you um i obviously i went to sigraph this past year and they did a vr experience with that was hugely engaging i don't know if any uh, else uh got to go see it but it it's on par with that and it's gonna just as far as i can tell it's gonna explode as a field and create a lot of opportunities for our industry to kind of play around with What do you guys, like in terms of um, softwares and pipeline, like, like, you know, a lot of this stuff is very new to me. Uh, so like in terms of trying to get it, the work I do into a pipeline that you guys would be working with, like what would be, you know, I guess a, a good kind of jumping off point for say a motion designer that wants to um, start making some content that would be able to live in that space. Sure. Um, I, what we're doing here, what I specifically am doing, uh, we bought an Oculus Quest because it's one of the more approachable platforms. Um, and we are using Unity to develop uh, the material, which I don't know how many uh, people here are into Unity, but they have, uh, it's still a little patchy, um, kind of like the pipeline between cinema and After Effects, but you can take After Effects, or I'm sorry, uh, Cinema, uh, 3ds Max, and I believe Maya files yeah, as well, and go, yeah, Blender's the big one, because that's the free one. Yeah. Um, you can take those and they'll port really well into Unity, which gives you that jumping off point to get into XR. Um, if you're more in the AR, uh, versus VR, uh, Adobe Aero just launched. I've been watching a lot of their stuff. I haven't gotten a chance to play around in it yet, but it's that and what's that other VR development or AR development platform? It's like 
Quest AR or something? Spark AR. Spark AR. Well, so, yeah, so jumping off that point, there's sort of, like, different... XR is a huge category that encompasses, like, these buckets that we call, like, VR, AR, and, like, mixed reality MR. Um, and different things will sort of relate to, to different other things. Um, if you're wanting to go to kind of, like, full experience or app development for VR, then you need to find your way into 3D if you're not already there. And so, yeah, those, those entry points are like, Blender's really what I tend to see people using as the entry point, but yeah, 3DS, all, all, Cinema 4D, all that stuff, because it needs to ultimately get into a game engine. Unity is the most approachable game engine. It's also free um, until you start making money, which is great. Um, Unreal's awesome as well, but Unreal's, the, the barrier to entry is much higher. Um, and so like, that's kind of that pipeline in um, and a lot of the knowledge, if, if After Effects is sort of your weapon of choice, there's a lot of 3D spoofing that's happening in After Effects that really does actually relate to 3D development. I'm sure you can sort of speak to that. Yeah. Um, and then over here for like mobile AR, it, the, the barrier to entry is much, much lower. Um, Adobe Aero basically functions like uh, a half step between After Effects and Photoshop. In fact, you can bring your Photoshop files into Aero and just situate the layers in an actual Z space, and then apply basic animations that are already sort of stock within the app. Also, Arrow is free. So you can take like some kind of silly thing you whipped up in Photoshop and spatialize it, and then send it. If you're on uh, Mac, it's got USDZ native export. So you can just send it to somebody as a text message. They can open it up on their phone, and you can kind of iterate that way. Spark AR, the berry is a tiny bit higher, but like even somebody like me who's fairly uh, uh, illiterate on that front uh, was able to pick it up with relative ease. And in fact, Spark AR, I'd really recommend everybody just playing with because you can start making filters and it's a good way to get like native kind of growth to whatever your social media interests are. Um, but like all those filters that I'm sure a lot of you saw where it was like, which Disney character are you or which Pokemon are you or whatever, those take like about 10 minutes to make. So you could all be making, you could be churning those out like hundreds at a time and growing your social channels. Um, so things like that are really light and simple and don't require you to go learn a whole 3D pipeline if that's not interesting to you. Which is a, a big thing that um, freaking uh, Joey uh, from School of Motion is about diversifying your income streams. So, you know, if you've got uh, some downtime and you don't wanna start a personal project, go make some AR filters and make a little bit of money on it. But I think um, it looks like Sage wanted to say something. I think he's trying to find a. I think he's trying to find a uh, place to hook in for his uh, mic. Yeah, he's oh. at work, so he'll, he'll probably jump in in a few minutes. Cool. Um, um, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of like just piggyback off what you were saying about the diversification. Um, I don't know how many people on the call actually know Tokyo Megaplex, Christopher Rutledge, but he just started doing filters and he pretty much learned it in like three days, like over a three day weekend and yep. already had job offers sent to him based on it. So like, like basically he made this filter and then people were like, oh, you know how to do that? All right, let, let's hook up for a job. So to like totally a, a thing right now where people want to get involved with that. Uh, Scott's raising his hand. I want to call on him. Hey, uh, so I recently, as in like starting Monday last week, I 
watched a Ben Marriott tutorial where he went through like Spark AR. I was like, dude, I can totally do that. Yep. Uh, and over the course of the week, like, I mean, so I'm, I'm primarily working in cinema 4d. So transferring models and all that stuff is like, it's spark AR is just an extension of that at this point. So it was super easy to pick up. I had a filter, like my first time opening up the software, I had a filter within 20 minutes. Um, and I've just been like working on it. it wasn't anything crazy. I had some like layers floating around, but it was enough to get me like comfortable with saying like, okay, like I can really start stretching this out. Uh, and in that same week, I kind of started looking into it. Uh, I'm working at an event production company and I asked my boss like, hey, is this something we could sell to clients? Like, do you think we could get like custom AR filters for an event that's coming up? And they were totally on that. So that's over the course of a week, I've learned this software and I'm already working on a business pitch development plan for it. So yeah. it's, it's like that easy to pick up. Like you can use like you, if you already have a good solid knowledge base in motion graphics, it's really easy to jump into Spark AR. So. Cool, thanks. Yeah, keep us posted on how that goes. I'm really interested to see how, I mean, that sounds like a great idea, like bringing it to like an event space or, or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing, um, that really prompted it was I got an email uh, about a job posting and it was something, so it was like a three, three day freelance job. And they're like, Hey, we need somebody with spark AR. And I'm just like, well, I mean, I need a new software to learn. Why not? So it's <laughs> kind of what prompted it. And now I'm, hell, it may be a new big revenue stream for me at some point. So. Nice. Yeah. I, I had a question for Matt and Jesse, just what, can you walk through like, I don't know, like a very simplified project from start to end. Cause when I first got into motion, it was right when like VR was becoming a big thing. And like I worked for discovery channel and they were trying to like discover to put together VR apps and like do all that. And it was kind of cumbersome, but like now it seems like it's not very cumbersome and like fusion, you can now work in VR and composite in VR very easily. So has, has a workflow gotten easier? Like what, like what, how long does it like a, a, a project usually take to flush out? And then like, what, what are the steps that you usually work through? So, good. so our experience is going to be a bit different than uh, a lot of yours because we're working in the educational space rather than the commercial space. But yeah, to the short answer to your question, Liam, is yes, the, the workflows are developing and getting easier day by day. Right now, they're still very approachable, uh, especially for those of us who have the technical expertise because we've worked in cinema or at, even after effects. Like there, there's a lot of um, real easy doorways to entry to get involved into AR, VR development. Um, I think mostly right now, it's a lot of jargon fright, right? Like uh, VR is still very early adopter phase. Um, I, I hesitate to say so, but like, I think this year is going to be kind of a big year for VR AR just because uh, when I went to go buy an Oculus Quest uh, for the office, it's on a two month back order since before Christmas because now literally, I mean, it's 400 bucks and literally every, like they sold out. <laughs> Oculus doesn't, you can't buy them directly from Oculus. So I think that this, this is, if, if you're looking for like 
uh, a jump off point. I think now's the time personally, but uh, you'd be the expert on the industry as a whole. Yeah, I mean, so again, for clarity, like my get actually getting into the stack is not where I have expertise. My understanding is that everything has gotten a lot more streamlined since I got into the industry in 2014. Um, I'm guessing sometime around then was when you we were doing stuff with discovery. Um, and like back then, like 360 cameras were like seven GoPros kluge together and you had to stitch it with this like expensive French program called Autopano, like all this stuff. Now you have cameras that are, that are all in one cloud stitched and can kind of export perfectly at better qualities than what that was. So that kind of premise, applies to most things. Unity particularly has done just a massive amount of work to become kind of cross compatible. Um, and then, yeah, as to, as to the reason to kind of grab it, even if there is still a little uh, kind of clunkiness is usually what happens is the people that kind of get a little bit of a head start on, on when it's clunky end up being the resources for everybody else and the people that everybody else points to. Um, and so like, like that was my experience, like the stuff I started yapping my gums about in 2014, 2015 that I didn't know much about, but I was learning in real time, caused a lot of people to kind of come to me for that stuff. And then it created a community and it made it really easy to kind of find other access points in the industry. So I, I'd really recommend not waiting until it's totally streamlined and easy, but actually grabbing hold when, when it's a little tougher and really sharing everything you know and being free with that because it'll cause people to like being the person who kind of rises up as like the translator between 3d devs, XR devs and motion graphics designer. Like if you're that person, then everybody will see you as that person. And that's kind of a cool opportunity space. <laughs> that's me. That's my goal. That's what I want to do. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, I'm sure everybody on this call has gone through some kind of after effects tutorial. I mean, we were just talking, about some of the famous ones. Uh, I personally like uh, Mark Magnuson. He's a, he's a favorite of mine, but like- What was that guy in like the mid-aughts? Uh, there's- Kramer? Oh, Andrew Kramer. Andrew Kramer, yeah. yeah. So I wanna be the Andrew Kramer of <laughs> VR, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Kramer here, um, but Sage finally got uh, his camera working, looks like. So let's give it up yeah. to him unless you need more specifics. Hello, is this weekend? It's working. <laughs> hey guys, this is the first call that I'm on that I've actually been able to get in a room and I don't have another meeting on a Monday. So hi everyone. I don't know if you know me or not, but everybody calls me Sage. I do a lot of VR stuff. That's my day job. That's where I'm right now. I'm at a huge office where all we do is generally VR things. Um, so if there are any questions about the pipeline, I also use Cinema 4D exclusively, so, and I've also used Unity and Unreal. So if anybody has any questions about how that works, which one to use for what, uh, they can ask in the chat, or you can ask here and I'll be able to answer. The, pro the project that I'm working on right now specifically is actually not VR, it's more like XR or MR, I guess. It's a interactive um, experience that you can go through, but it's all like projection mapped in an environmental 360 projection mapped. And you can go from room to room and it's a narrative that plays out. So 
it's a little interesting. It is interactive. It is a narrative. So, and we have done a via narrative already called the Great Sea um, that you could download on the like Oculus or Steam and check it out. It's just it's just like a short animated movie. And then we've also done a couple games. One is called Transpose. One is called Blasters of the Universe. Now we're working on free roam VR stuff right now. So that's where you put on a backpack and you can like walk around in VR. So, so Sage, yeah, I'm, gonna, seen... I'm gonna interrupt you for a second. That's fine. <laughs> I, think, I think you glossed over yourself a little too quickly. Um, just <laughs> I tend to like, do that. So one, for those who don't know, Sage is the main mod for the C4D subreddit. Um, that is then, true. Yeah, and then the company, because you didn't say, is Secret Location, and they're based yes. in Toronto, Canada. That's um, all true. <laughs> yeah, so I just want I want to get that out of the way too, so people knew where you're coming from. Yeah, and if you, in case you didn't know, I'm not from Canada because according <laughs> to Liam, I have rum voice or something. <laughs> I do drink a lot of rum. I'm not drinking rum right now, but <laughs> I'm from Trinidad in the Caribbean. Uh, some people know Sakani Solomon. He's also from Trinidad. He sounds kind of like me. So that's <laughs> why I sound the way I do. Um, but yeah, so all that stuff is true. And yeah, the company I work for is Secret Location. And we, the, the company kind of prides itself on being le like leaders or trying out things that haven't been tried yet in particular spaces. So that's why we're doing like free room VR and now this like MR interactive experience thing that doesn't really have any descriptors <laughs> at the moment. Paige, it, it seems like there's a couple people with questions. I saw Scott's hand go up and then I saw Jesse's hand go up. So Scott, you, you uh, start and then we'll go to Jesse after. Hey yeah. Sage. Uh, so the biggest question I have is, um, so I, dabbled a little bit in like the VR space a while ago and I always hit the wall of working in cinema there never seemed to be an easy way of like optimizing assets because what everything I heard about like oh if you want to go into Unreal or Unity you need to have everything unwrapped you need to make sure it's low poly it's like game ready assets and stuff like that and the reason I went with Cinema 4D initially was because I didn't need to do that kind of stuff for my animation so what kind of things what like are you working with that help you make assets in cinema 4d that make it able to work in, in an ar vr application well the first the first thing to to remember is that like it depends on the it depends on the final uh deliverable so like if you were doing if you were doing a, a piece like an asset for consumption on like an oculus rift or a or a HTC Vive, those can be a little higher poly because the minimum hardware requirements to run those types of applications are actually higher. Whereas if you're going to something like a Windows headset or a Quest or a Cosmos, like those are the very different grade of hardware that does need to be far more optimized, does need to be far more like like game mobile game ready, I would say. And then there's a class even below that, which is like the Daydream and the Samsung Gear VR, which is really mobile. Um, 
so yeah, there's there's those three tiers of of I would say headsets right now, and depending on which one you want to deliver to, you do need to. A lot, some of that stuff is true because of the way game engines work. They work fundamentally different from how animation packages like Maya and Blender and those things work. So yes, you do need to unwrap all your assets if you want things to come in like easily. You do need to optimize them, but you they don't again like depending on what you're targeting, they don't need to be like you don't need to take like a hundred thousand poly character and bring it down to like five thousand like three hundred. Because some people will tell you that that it needs to be all the way down. That's not entirely true. If you're probably targeting like Gear VR and stuff like depending on what your project is, maybe your characters is 10,000 polys, but your environments are like super low. Maybe it's more of a balance. So it does really depend on what you're targeting. Like I can tell you for the great C, our polygon budget for an entire scene was like a million polys. So all, all the environments, all the characters that were all in the scene at a time needed to be like, I think it was like 1.2 was the biggest one. And that basically it just has to run at 90 frames per second on a 1060. So, you know, it varies. It's a tough question, but it is true that like you do, you absolutely do need to like unwrap your stuff. And if you don't unwrap it, you don't need to, un well, you don't necessarily need to unwrap it to the level that people might tell you, like you can't do a cubic unwrap and it will work. Like you could just go into the cinema, cause I use Cinema 4D through my unwraps, but I do mostly environment modeling. So I can get away with a cubic unwrap if I have a substance artist making substance materials. And, they, and it, will look, it will look really good. It will look great. But like, you can also use, what I also find um, very helpful, especially in terms of environments is using the, the uh, tags, the selection tags. So if you, want to put three or four materials on a single object, you can just like tag it out the way you would in cinema. Like, and, and then in cinema, what I do is I make selection tags of the parts that I want to be separate materials. And then I'll put temp materials on them, like just a solid green, solid red, solid blue, solid orange, whatever. So that when I bring it into Unreal or Unity, I immediately can see which tag, because sometimes the tags get confused when you do the translation. So yes, you can immediately see which tag is applied to what material, and then you can rename new materials and then make proper materials for them in Unreal or in Unity so that it looks the way you want it to, um, the way it looked in, in cinema. You can also bake down all your stuff in cinema if you really wanted to, but you do have to use stand, like standard materials. You can't use like Octane or Redshift as far as I know. Maybe Liam or one of these other guys who use a lot of Redshift will be able to answer that part on how you bake down materials in a third party render engine. But if you use standard materials, you can bake down all your stuff in cinema and just bring them over and just drop the channels in the same way that you would in cinema and it will look like the same-ish. <laughs> Hopefully that answered your question. Let's, let's go to let's go to Jesse. His question. Then Liam had a question, and uh, Mark also had a question. Go ahead. Yeah, Jesse. hey Sage, good to meet you. Um, I uh, I you know <laughs> I know some people that used to be there, and uh, I don't know when you joined, 
But one, one example that immediately came to mind that I think this group would do well to hear about if you're able to speak to it is Vuser. Um, yeah. Because I feel like that, that's like totally in line with, with what's possible relative to design. Yeah, so Fusa is like the other half of the company. The company is really, well, when I joined, was split down kind of in the middle. We had a content department that made games and stuff like that. And then we had an actual like development arm that was specifically into making VR tech. And the big product that came out of that was Vuza. There were a couple others that came out in different manifestations, but Vuza was kind of the biggest one. And it is a distribution, VR distribution platform that lets you, it has a couple versions, but the version that I am familiar with, it lets you make apps like through a CMS backend and like push out like pre-built one-click one build apps to the App Store and Steam and whatever to uh, kind of disseminate usually VR videos, but it can also do games. It could also do like real-time content. So yeah, it is, it is a whole kind of, I'm more on the, I, when I was hired, I was more on the content side and the company has sort of evolved, um, not away from user type applications, but what happened was when user became a mature product, we kind of captured all of the big distributors. Like we had contracts with Discovery and National Geographic and New York Times. And now I think it's powering the HTC Vive video application is, is user. But once we kind of captured all those people, it was like, well, there isn't really a lot of, there isn't, there isn't a lot of, uh, not demand, but enough kind of income to kind of keep the development going. So we sort of evolved that half of the business to kind of more coalesce with the content side. So the project that I'm working on now is all, it's like all user developers who are working on this, like this interactive experience, but it's really, again, it's like a platform that we're making so that if you want to make interactive experiences like the one that we're making, um, we can just sell you the tech or, you know, you can license it and then you can just build like a projection maps experience and have it run and have all the like controls for people to handle it, to press play and the content plays and you press pause, it, you know? So like, yeah. <laughs> uh, Liam, I don't know if you want to jump in and ask your, your question, but this I think brings it back to kind of like the content creator yeah, my my question kind of stems just from like earlier in the chat, like a, bunch, a few people were saying like how Unity might be harder to learn or code base versus Unreal and all of that. Um, so I'm, I'll throw it to Matt and Jesse first. Is, yeah. is there a reason to use Unity versus Unreal or do you guys have a preference um, or uh, have you found one workflow to be better than the other? So I'm still fairly new in terms of uh, VR development. Um, and I prefer Unity just because it's super approachable and free. Um, I've seen a couple of use cases uh, colloquially that Unreal was better for, but um, my hot take on the matter is that they are both just fine depending on what you want to do. It's kind of like saying 
Uh, I prefer Blender or 3ds Max or C4D. It's just another package that you have to learn how to uh, use and what the constraints are. I think the payoff for learning Unreal, as far as I've been able to see, and Sage, feel free to correct me on this, is the lighting, shading, and textures from Unreal are, there's more possibility and they, they have a, a more robust feel to them. Um, but again, that's like what the what the cost benefit is as somebody coming from the side of trying to actually learn one of these and, uh, and, and use it, I think getting started with Unreal, I've seen make a lot of sense for people. So not yeah, exactly so, um, a concrete answer for you, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I have a lot of experience with both of them. Um, we're using, we're using, we used Unreal for the Great C and we're using Unreal for our uh, interactive experience platform. But I would say for, it, yeah, it really does depend. Uh, Unity is more approachable. I find the way that Unity behaves just in terms of the application itself is actually a lot more like the way C4D behaves, like the way uh, the object manager is handled, the way it handles files, the way it handles like the, the you know, file hierarchies, stuff like that. Like if you are familiar with C4D and even just like scene navigation, stuff like that, all that stuff is the same in Unity and, and on um, C4D. So if you're coming from C4D and Again, if it depends on what you're doing, uh, Unity is probably like an easier path. But Unreal um, is do, does have the the trend for Unreal is towards realism. So if you're like really familiar with like Optane or Redshift, making materials, native materials, is probably easier for you in Unreal because it has a very very similar node based. In, uh, interface for the material creation, the way the like the channels that you get in your materials are also very similar. It's like albedo and metalness and like all of those attributes are all very similar. Am I going to get kicked out of this? No. Um, but yeah. So, but the thing is like with with Unreal, it does require if you want to make games, it does require a little more like knowledge. I wouldn't say code knowledge, but because it has a really good node-based interactive programming system called Blueprints, but Unity also has that. So it's called something different and, you know, it functions slightly differently, but they are basically the same. But what I would say from being on the, on knowing a lot of people who've gone to like GDC and has talked to Unity developers and Unreal developers, like Unreal really comes at it more from a content creator perspective because they make games with the engine that they have created. Like Epic makes games. They make Fortnite, they make, you know, Gears of War, whatever. Like they make games with their engine. So they are always constantly trying to make it easier for people who make games to grasp and understand and use their products. Whereas Unity comes at it way more from like a development standpoint. Like they, are, they if, if you're a developer, they use a much easier to understand programming language C sharp versus C++, like Unreal uses C++ and Unity uses C sharp. So the, the, the features in, in Unity 
this is going to sound really bad, but the features in Unity tend to be a little more unstable because they're always in some form of development uh, station. Like, they're never completely done. They'll, like, get three quarters of the way there and then, like, decide to switch it over to something else. And, like, so I find in terms of being from Cinema 4D, yes, it does function a lot more like Cinema 4D, but when you get into the nitty-gritty of it, it is somewhat harder to use. Whereas Unreal, because they come at it from the place where they're always making games, like a company that makes the engine also makes games. So once you kind of get further down your pipe, Unreal is easier to use. And so yeah, Unity is easy to start with and Unreal is easier to use in the long run. But it really depends on what you're doing. Like if you're just doing like AR and small VR things, and I would say 100% use Unity, don't really get into the weeds with Unreal. But if you do, if you're serious about it, if you do want to like understand a much more deep sense of how these things work and you want to keep doing it for a much longer kind of time frame, then I would say use Unreal because they seem to be a little more, also Unreal, I would say, I know I'm getting kind of rambly, but Unreal has a, Epic has a program called Epic Mega Grants that if you are trying to do something that no one has done before and you're using Unreal, you can apply for a grant from Epic to fund your project, which is, you know, a really good thing. And as far as we, we've applied for one, um, yeah, so there's a lot of, it feels like there's a little more opportunity. Like Epic is using their, their Fortnite money because they make like crazy money from Fortnite to really push their, uh, their platform forward in a way that's not just about making more money, but it is about trying to like make it easier and more accessible in the beginning stages because it is a bit harder in the beginning stages to use Unreal. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for that info. I think, <clears throat> we're fast approaching the top of the hour here, but, um, sorry guys. No, I no, don't have to leave at the top of the hour. So. No, it's great. It's great. Uh, Mark had a, I think a good way to kind of, you know, start to wrap up this topic. Um, I don't know, Mark, do you want to hop in and ask it yourself? I see you have, uh, you have video, but I don't know if you're frozen or, I think he might have frozen because his video hasn't moved moved in a minute. Okay, let's see. Why? Well, I'll ask it for Mark since it looks like he may have frozen. Okay. Uh, so Mark said in the chat um, to move beyond technical and just kind of like where the industry is pointing. Can you, any of you, speak towards like what you can do with VR? So like when you're brainstorming at work or um, kind of like what people used to think about, like, hey, this is what we could do with the internet, like, you know, 20 years ago. I'll throw some things out. I mean, this, this conversation can get very massive very quickly. And yeah, when you've got a lot of people just first encountering VR, that kind of wow factor then causes people to say very obvious, less effective things. I think, um, Hollow conferencing and um, co-creation. So being able to be in a space and like, not, not just like have meetings, but actually be able to draw in the air, voice to text, you know, send files, anything that's sort of gesture based, I think is one whole arena that's really exciting. Uh, 
making art with your hands that's traditionally been made in software suites, I think is a huge new thing um, that we won't even, like there's a program called Masterpiece Motion, which allows you to take, um, to actually rig and skin uh, 3D models from within VR. You literally just drag your controller down their, their limbs. Um, and, uh, and of course, like enterprise training, like anything that's like high risk training, uh, turning those things into games. Um, so like you could have a whole army of people who know how to suddenly operate forklifts because you make like a really fun game out of like, you know, operating a forklift. Um, but I think more broadly, like causing us to think spatially about the web, which a lot of you Spatial are already doing. With 3.0. Um, yeah. But, yeah. but just that, that mental shift from everything being 2D to I have my sort of 2D literacy and I have my 3D literacy. And when everybody starts to have 3D literacy, we can really evolve what that conversation becomes um, and sort of how we approach it. So there's, there's a lot I could say, but I'll kind of cap it. Yeah. Um, the, my final thing I'll say on the matter is that um, I'm tracking uh, the web 3.0, the spatial web, uh, especially with the advent of 5G, like uh, it's a real possibility that that's what the internet of the future will look like. It'll look less like, uh, you know, logging in through a monitor and more like putting on your glasses and actually interacting. Think um, Wreck-It Ralph or uh, what was that? What was the, the one movie with the kid in the vest? Uh, it was live action. Oh, Ready Player One, yes. So that that's extreme. That might be, you know, 10 years down the line, but that's kind of the way the tech is headed. Um, and then the other thing that I'm researching is gamification and UX UI design, uh, which are just going to be huge as, you know, uh, to speak to motion graphics trends. Look at how huge... Uh, FUI got after the Iron Man movie launched, right? Like suddenly everybody wanted FUI in every project that they produced. And that uh, kind of mentality is exactly what's going to go into this next gold rush into VR as far as I can tell. Uh, don't, you know, don't invest on my word alone, but do some research and it's a really wide, interesting open world. I mean, yeah, I, I would, I would add that. Yeah. Like it's the, it's still really in its infancy. Like we've the whole company company that I work for, I should say has been in it for a while now. Um, but there are so many different applications, not just for VR, but like even the tech behind VR, if you get into like game engines, just like real, real time game engines, just as a, as a technology, for you to kind of get in early and understand how that works and what it can do even outside of VR and XR and MR and all that stuff is I think very beneficial. A lot of, a lot of content is moving towards that kind of avenue. Um, so yeah, like I'd say just download one, download Unreal, download Unity, just try it out, see if you like it. You know, a lot of things are going that way. VR has so much potential that, you know, it would take another hour to kind of talk about. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Scott's got his hand raised. Uh, I'll call on him real quick. Hey, uh, so I completely agree with everything you guys say. I think VR, AR, it's going to be a new gold rush. And I think we're going to see some amazing projects come out in the next five, 10 years, uh, even shorter than that. 
Uh, but one thing, especially with its it in its infancy, is I want to give a word of warning. Um, be very careful of clients trying to shoehorn VR and AR into a project that it wasn't meant for. Uh, that's something that I've run into is like people really want to do like this new campaign or something like that. And they know that VR and AR is the buzzwords right now. So they're like, oh, hey, how can we do a VR campaign for our hair care product line? And I'm sure you could come up with an idea that would work for that specific thing. But you also need to realize sometimes that, hey, like, you know, you, you, it's not going to be benefited by having a VR and AR application. So that's that's one thing you just kind of got to keep an eye on is making sure that if you cho choose to go down the VR AR route, make sure that it's motivated. Um, that's that's something that's I, I've run into at a couple agencies and stuff like that. You got some higher ups that are like, oh, we want to do VR and stuff like that, but they just don't understand like its best use cases. Whereas like the other side I saw a really great one was there was a tennis tournament where they had people put on the Vive headset and they had like uh, people play against professionals in a VR space. I was like, that is a great execution. That got people really invested in the brand and really showcased it. But you know, other things of just like, I don't know, the grocery store chain trying to make like, I don't know, like I'm having trouble coming up with bad examples, but I, I hope you guys can understand what I'm saying. It's It's not, it, it's not for everything. So you got to find that balance. Yeah, I think that's a great point, you know, and that goes for so many different technologies and, and whatnot, but especially for people that are just trying to catch the buzzword, you know? Um, so yeah, thanks for making that point. <clears throat> I wanted to mention too, there's a company here in Burlington, Vermont called OVR technology and what they do, um, they use, VR, but then combine that with um, scent, and they've been using it to treat uh, PTSD and people from, you know, like traumatic experiences and stuff, because scent combined with a VR experience can really like bring them back to certain times and stuff to help them cope. Um, and uh, apparently they've been very successful and like, U.S. government's looking at them in terms of trying to bring in some of that technology to treat patients and stuff. So I think, you know, even outside of a commercial type of venue or application, I think, you know, yeah, the sky's the limit with different ways you can incorporate um, VR, AR, XR, MR, whatever, <laughs> whatever R you may want to go with. Um, but yeah, I think we could definitely open up Pandora's box here. Like I see Tony and Mark have also chimed in. Tony said, is there any discussion about how virtual internet might impact humans' perception of reality? You know, like psychological impacts to a VR world uh, that you can step in and out of. How do we adapt to that? Um, then there's the whole privacy discussion with AR stuff. Um, so it seems like, you know, maybe we could you know, save this topic for another week and, and invite um, Sage and Jesse and some other people back in that are, you know, more experts in this space to help, you know, kind of talk about those issues as well. Yeah. Those topics, I should say. I'd love to get um, like Zubair and the Quince team to come on too, yeah. since they, they're now doing AR with projection mapping at the same time. So, and that was like really fun to work on last year. Hmm. Um, 
so yeah, I, I agree. Like we could, <laughs> we could probably go on another like hour or two hours. Yeah, and I I did want to say too, like welcome to everyone who joined this week for the first time. I know we've got a few uh, new uh, participants here, so welcome. Um, And one of those participants is Lee, and he said that he's new to Monday meetings, and he kind of suggested a topic of moving from on-site to remote work as a dad with three kids, Um, and I think that's a obviously a huge topic too. So Lee, if that's all right, maybe we'll, we'll save that for next week or something and we can move on to that. Um, and I, I think this is a great group to have that discussion with. A lot of us do work at home um, and have had to have that kind of mind shift, especially if you're taking care of family and whatnot. So um, definitely a good group to you know have that discussion with. Um, since we are right at 11, we do have a few links on uh, inspiration and news to kind of go over here, um, just real quick. Uh, just wanted to give a shout out to Quad Remesher. Uh, I don't know if anyone has used this plugin or I guess it's a plugin. I don't know. I don't think it's standalone software, but it's... Um, it's a little bit of both, it seems like. like yeah, 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 totally. It, it like goes... They have stuff for Houdini, every everything. Houdini, C4D, Max, Blender, I think a bunch of shit. Anyway, uh, it's essentially auto uh, retopology, and it's from a company called Exocide. Um, I needed to convert this shitty-ass CAD model to have quads and was trying to do it by hand, and it was just going to take fucking way too long. So... Uh, bought this thing and it like literally in like four seconds (laughs) changed it to like usable quads. So uh, I'm a true fan of that. So giving them a shout out. I don't know if anyone else has used it, but um, I think under the hood, the technology is very similar to instant message or instant message, (laughs) instant meshes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I, from my experience using both of them now, I mean, Quad remeshers, like, I mean, you do pay for it, but like, literally, it's a one click solution, it seems like. Um, moving I, on, from- I used it a little bit last week, and I can, I can very briefly speak to it because I was doing it with like organic moving stuff too mm-hmm. inside of Houdini, and it really kept up with it. Like, I, like, I think, do I still have the project? I don't have the project open, but I had like something like 70,000 polys and I set it to try and hit like 5,000 polys and it did it. It, it like, it just handled it. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it's really cool. Yeah. And for like the full uh, production uh, license, it's like 150 bucks, but you can also get uh, a subscription license to like, say just the cinema 4d plugin or just the Houdini plugin. I think it's $15 for three months. So, I mean, super affordable. Um, so that's, that's rad. Um, next, uh, Mark Fancher, who has done the Stop Being Afraid of Houdini course, was just on the MoGraph podcast talking about the new course. They did kind of a live special recording of that um, last week. So the link is, I'm going to, try to grab it for you guys here i just got it i posted it you did okay great um 
moving on from there, I haven't watched this yet, but Liam, do you, have you seen it? Um, I, yeah, I went through it really quickly. It's funny cause Jesus had hit me up man, maybe like two or three months ago with this issue. Um, and it's kind of like a weird quirk inside of Redshift. So I'll throw the link in right now for RS camera tag. So basically what happened is um, Jesus was trying to figure out why his live viewer, his render view window was refreshing every time he would make an adjustment in the camera tag. And just the way Semaphore D's tags work, it triggers a refresh in the live viewer. While if you do your camera tag adjustments inside the live viewer, there's like a little icon that you can hit and make the adjustments in there. It'll update the tag without doing a refresh. So it's like a really like hacky thing that happens in Cinema 4D that it kind of sucks that it triggers a whole new render that we figured out if you do the adjustments, no matter what camera you have selected, it will automatically start to adjust that camera's tags. So you don't have to redo a render every time. So um, hmm. yeah, basically you just throw your camera tag on your camera, open up the render view, make your adjustments in there and it will adjust your tag from that point forward. And then if you need to do like camera two, you just switch to that camera and then the render view will know, all right, we're using this camera now and we'll adjust that camera's tags. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really quick. It's like a five minute little blip, but um, I never made a video on it. So it's pretty cool that Jesus did that, especially since he's got such a big octane background. It's, it's neat to see him move towards Redshift. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Uh, and then did you want to talk about the next one? I think you put that next one in. Sure. Let me just grab the link. And so five minute Houdini tutorials. There we go. So I just threw that in the chat. Uh, and Tagma, who's been doing Houdini tutorials for a few years now, is kind of realizing what MoGraph realized that like, there really aren't really great beginner tutorials. So they're doing Houdini in five minutes, um, just like quick tips of things that you can do to make your life in Houdini better and easier. Uh, the first one is like learning Houdini's layout and structure. Second one's your first node tree. Third one is learning about attributes in five minutes and rendering and then uh, making your render look nicer and things like that. Um, so those are really great, I assume. Uh, just because it's in Tagma, I haven't had a chance to watch them. They really just came out in the last 12 hours or so. So um, hopefully they're good. Cool. Uh, and staying on like kind of the learning topic here, uh, Maxon just released a few days ago all of the presentations from NAB East. Um, so let's see, Andrew Kramer's in that one, a bunch of other people. I think Sakani is in that. Um, so check that out. And then uh, we- I th Yeah, I threw in the next one. So yeah. um, since it's Lee's first call, plus he was just in the School of Motion emailer. Uh, Lee just released a whole new website and everything. So we'll just give him a shout out for, for that. Um, so Lee's been a School of Motion alumni for a while now and known him through there. And he just produced a whole new website, which has a bunch of illustrations and work um, from doing like the 
the illustration course is called Motion. I think you put out a new show reel as well. Um, yeah. I, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just watched the show reel right before the call, and it is freaking phenomenal. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just quick. He, he says thanks and the thumbs up while he's holding his baby. <laughs> Love it. Um, but I think that's the last link. Yeah, right? I mean, we talked about it quick last week, but uh, Mixed Parts is closing. Uh, oh, yeah, you know, I forgot about that. And I was sad to see, but I think sign of the times, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, so hop on over there, give your condolences, I guess. <laughs> um, but, yeah, other than that, I think next week uh, – don't have a dedicated topic per se. Uh, Matthew has said that he might have someone be uh, able to come in about like some coping stuff. Um, and I'm just trying to think out loud right now. Like, I wonder if we could um, piggyback that with Jason's topic. I don't know. We'll have to chat offline about that. But anyway, um, Stay tuned to all of our social channels and slacks and all that uh, to figure out what we'll do next week. But um, until then, we very much appreciate everyone showing up and taking time out of your day to be with us. So thank you. Um, and thanks for listening. If you're listening on a, your pod catcher of choice, um, if you want to hit us up, uh, info at mondaymeeting.org or uh, Monday meeting on Instagram and uh, Twitter. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. Liam, you good? Yeah. Sorry, I'm responding to something on Slack, but I, <laughs> I'm good. Um, cool. Yeah, I would say definitely like the next two weeks for people to, to check it out because I think the topic is going to be good. Whether we do like psychology or parenting and then um also just with jason coming on i, I think that is going to be fantastic so right yeah but yeah thanks everybody for joining in as always awesome well thanks and uh we just posted last week's meeting uh sorry that's a little bit late liam got that up today so thanks liam for doing that um so check it out and we'll get this one up as well so thanks all uh thanks jesse thanks sage thanks matthew for coming in and talking about this stuff today. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next week.